0: Thank you very much, Mr. Reed. Welcome. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming today. I have forgotten how cool it is here in Hollister, California. Over there on the other side of the valley actually gets quite warm. Has it been cool like this all summer? Kind of? Ish? Anything over 100 degrees? All right, good. No, I really love the temperatures here today. Uh, for those that I do see some faces I haven't seen before, um, I do see a lot of familiar faces. But for those of you that uh, don't know me, uh, my name is um, Jared Leonard. Um, I work at Wolf Mountain Christian Camp here in Grass Valley, California. It's about three and a half hours that direction, if you were to go straight. Um, and I, my official role is the horsemanship director there and program operations. So what program operations means is not really working with program, but basically fixing anything that the kids break along the way in the <laughs> program thing. So it's, um, it's a very time-consuming job. Um, kids, particularly junior campers, aren't particularly known for being graceful with our uh, program equipment, so a lot of things need to be fixed along the way. And I have, I have a long list of things I need to do when I get back, which is pretty soon after this. So, um, but my other half of my job that I very much appreciate is horsemanship director, which means I run horsemanship camp there. So I'm going to say the camp mission statement real quick um, so that you know what Wolf Mountain is. Wolf Mountain is a home missions ministry using the unique aspects of the camping ministry to reach young people for the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen families, and serve local churches. It is a place of decision in the areas of salvation, full surrender, and consistent Christian walk. So it is a camp and comfort center Focused around those core values and ideas um, to reach young people for the Lord Jesus Christ, and part of our mission statement is it mentions unique aspects of the camping ministry, meaning we use camp and we use unique aspects of camp to reach young people and also um, to work with families and local churches as well. One of the unique aspects that we do at Wolf Mountain is horsemanship, mainly because in that particular area there's a there's a um, high desire for horses. Now, our camp director, um, his name's John Moore, um, he used to work for a different horsemanship program and found out through that that he didn't like horses very much. Um, some people just don't um, have a passion for horses. Not that um, they're not cool or anything, but some horse some people will use things like horses stink, they smell, um, whereas other things like bikes and stuff, you know, they're there waiting for you and you can just jump on and go, whereas horses are just something different. In fact, um, he wanted when he first went to work at Wolf Mountain in 2010, he wanted to start a program, a very nice program, called quadmanship. (laughs) And he envisioned um, uh, trail rides with quads one after another, going down roads and going on all across property and stuff like that, until he looked it up and found out that the insurance rates on quads were actually quite high and that the insurance rates on horses were a lot lower, breaking his heart, he felt that even though he didn't like and have a desire to work with horses in general, he saw the desire in the community for people, particularly young people who wanted to ride horses, and ended up um, keeping the, horse, the previous horsemanship program that was there. Throughout most pool directors um, that came and left the horsemanship program, I came on last January as an intern and then officially became resident staff last August. Um, have enjoyed every minute of it. Um, over the last six months, we have seen God bless in more ways than ever could have imagined. Last, last summer, we had three horsemanship camps. Um, it was, this is like right after COVID, so things are going just a little bit slow. And then after that, what happened was outstanding. We had only six usable horses at the end of last summer um, to work with horsemanship camps. And then at the end of summer, we said, if we don't get at least three new horses, we're not going to be able to run horsemanship camp effectively. So we started praying, looking for options, looking around, trying to figure out who's selling what we could do. We started sending out um, things like fundraisers, looking through Facebook fundraisers and asking. And through support of a lot of different people, we had access to $9,000 that was donated to Wolf Mountain specifically for the horsemanship program. And... So now we started looking around for new horses and everything, and we had the $9,000 set aside. And then we kept looking, and we couldn't find anything. Within the next couple months, this is at January, we had $9,000. And then a lady calls us up and says, hey, I got this new horse trailer that I haven't been used. Could you use it? I'm like, yes. Yeah, we can use it. Because we had no way of transporting horses at this point. Only used six times. Nice two-horse trailer. Now, if we bought a horse, we could actually transport them to property. We ended up buying one for $1,500. And then two weeks after that, Miss Pamela calls me up and says, I hear you're looking for new horses. Don't look anymore, I'm donating five. We were looking for three new horses, and we had enough room for three more horses. And within a few months span, God provides a brand new trailer, $9,000, and six new horses. At that point, I was scrounging around trying to, where am I going to put all these horses? I don't have place for all these horses. I'm trying to figure out and scrounge up some space and um, use some money to try to buy more hay so we get them through the winter. But we, we scraped together, we figured it out, and now... We have 11 usable horses. We used this summer. We had four horsemanship camps with 14 kids at each camp. And it has been truly a blessing to see how the summer. We just finished our last week of horsemanship camp last week. And we had 14 kids come, and one of them got saved. And one thing I want to say is um, why horsemanship camp? Like, yes, it's a unique aspect of camping ministry. and I could see that. But there's a distinct difference between horsemanship camp and the other camps that we do. For one, We do primarily junior and teen camps throughout the summer, but we also do horsemanship. Junior and teen camps are mainly advertised and publicized through Christian churches and Christian schools, so a lot of the kids that come to high school camp and to junior camp at Wolf Mountain already have heard about Jesus and know about God, and we um, speak throughout the week, and we do lectures um, for the purpose of helping them to make decisions, Horsemanship camp is not advertised specifically through churches and school. It is advertised throughout the community. So it is from a different perspective that kids come, and you can assume that most of them probably haven't even heard of Christ before. So the way you operate horsemanship camp and the way you speak is drastically different in the way you do um, high school and teen camp because of the crowd you're gathering. Um, Horsemanship campers are notoriously stubborn and hard-headed, um, they are steadfast in their ways, um, they, are v- they can be very disrespectful at times, but they, they are tough. They fall off, they get back on again, they keep on going. And we love the crowd, we love working with them, but speaking to them and trying to get them to make decisions um, to fulfill our mission statement is something else altogether. So we had to be very tactful in the way we put together our sermons. And so our typical horsemanship camp has five chapel messages, one for each day of the week, and we do our chapel in the morning. We do, we ride horses all day long, we do horse science all day long, but then we have chapels in the morning. And the way we do chapel has to be very strategic, because kids come to horsemanship camp to ride horses. If they're doing anything else besides riding horses, they're wondering, why am I not riding a horse right now? I need to be doing this. I came to camp for this, and this, this is what I want to do. But they're like, well, okay. What does the Bible have to do anything with riding horses? What does this have to do with horsemanship camp? And that's what we start off with when we first introduce them to scripture as we're going through horsemanship camp. So um, throughout the week, we have five chapel messages. Each one is about 45 minutes long. And I am bringing to you today what a typical horsemanship camp um, sermon would typically look like and how we introduce it. Now, again, I have five chapel messages. So 45 minutes, so 45 times 5, that's like, that's a lot. No, it's, it's, it's 225 minutes um, that I'm trying to compress here. Now, I've been told by Mr. Jeff that I have at least two hours that I can spend here talking. No. Um, I, I'm going to try to keep it within that half hour that we got right here. But I'm going to um, breeze through quickly on how we approach horsemanship campers. Um, knowing that they probably haven't heard about Christ before, they probably never heard about God, and they also, they're very stubborn, and they, they, they struggle making decisions, and they don't want to accept God usually. So, you got to introduce it, and then you got to follow through with the gospel at the very end. So, first of all, um, that is horsemanship camp, and usually when we first start the message, um, and our very first chapel message is, I raise this up in the air and say, do you guys know what this is? Do you guys bring one with you? And half of them... Um, a couple may have brought one of these, and the other half they're like, "What is that? What is it? What are you raising in the air?" Like, this is your textbook of the week. It's called a Bible. Do you know what a Bible is? And some like, "Oh yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of familiar with what a Bible is." And he's like, "What is a Bible?" And one of the kids will raise their hand, be like, "Nice in the air." They're like, "I know what the Bible is." I'm like, "Well, it's God's word." Very good. What else is the Bible? Does anybody know what the Bible is? The literal translation of Bible. If we go back is literally means the book or the collection, the scrolls, Um, mainly because that's what the Bible was in ancient times. It was just a collection of scrolls that was comprised into the Bible. So is literally the book, the book. And so we start going through main topics of what the Bible actually is. For one, the Bible translated is the book, but it's not just any book. It's a history book. It's a book of the world, um, the history of mankind. And then a few other interesting facts about the Bible. Now, kids will start questioning right now because, okay, you you introduced it as a history book, though. But is it really history? Like, because, like, I've uh, I've seen other things in history, like evolution and stuff like that, that prove the Bible wrong, right? So how how could you say it's a history book when most people would say it's a nice piece of literature and stuff like that? Well, keep going on. Um, The same way we identify any other copy of Scripture, and we start going through... Um, The reliability of the Bible. So, in a way that the kids will understand. For instance, uh, we'll talk um, briefly about American history. So, uh, how many of you believed that? uh, How many of you have researched the Civil War? Do you believe the Civil War actually happened? Do you believe it actually happened? Were you there when it happened? Do you know anyone else who was there when it happened? Well, then, how do you know that happened? Well, I read it in the history book. Exactly. Well, how do you know the history book is reliable and correct? The same way you identify anything else, uh, any ancient text, you will go back and you will, fu- you will find ancient copies back to back with each other and you compare them to determine its reliability and the more um, copies you have, the better there is. So the second coolest fact about the Bible that is unlike any other book is it has more identifiable um, copies than any other ancient text. If you were to put it side by side with any other ancient text, like say um, the Iliad, which was written by Homer, uh, which had... Um, a lot of identifiable ancient copies depicting the Battle of Troy. To date, we have 1,757 identifiable ancient copies of the Iliad compared to back to back with each other to say, okay, hey, the Battle of Troy actually happened. Achilles, he, yeah, he was a real person. And these events actually happened. There's only one ancient collection of documents that has more identical copies than the Iliad, and that is the New Testament Bible. To date, we have more than 23,795 ancient copies of the New Testament compared back side to side with each other, and that is reliability. Next it is the best-selling book in the world. Um, Within the past um, thousand years, um, they believe um, based on t- statistics that there has been around 5 trillion copies of the Bible sold, more than any other book to date. And it has been published in more than 600 languages. That is, a, And you put these facts in the kids, you're just like, oh, I've never known that about the Bible before. It must be a very significant book. I'm like, yes, it's a very significant book. So n- tomorrow, um, go ahead and bring your textbook to glass, and we'll keep going through it. Now, um, laying out the Bible the way it is, saying, hey, it's a history book, it's reliable, we just went over how many languages it's been published and so forth, and we're going through, and we're just learning cool facts about the Bible. Now, let's learn some history. First, in order to know your history, you've got to go very much to the very, very beginning. So, let's turn to the very first chapter, which is Genesis. Genesis, chapter 1, and verse 1. Now, most people from the beginning of the world I've always wanted to know how things began. So they come up with um, theories about evolution, and how things could have come to be, and things like that. But we've got a history book right here that determines its reliability. And at the very beginning, in the first chapter, it says, look, in the beginning. Hey, you don't have to look anywhere else because it starts from the beginning. <laughs> very cool, right? So we start from the beginning, and we start going through. In the beginning. And then the fourth word comes up. It says, in the beginning, God. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And this is when we start going into how God created the world, and then the campers, they start shutting off. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. Um, this this seems very biased here. You know, you're as- assuming that God is real and stuff like that. Why why is, like, it, why, If there's God, well, why, why do so many bad things happen in this world? You're just explaining through all this that God created everything perfect. Why is there sin in the world? And I, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to explain it right now. Then we go through the story of Adam and Eve briefly. Going through and how God created a perfect creation. A beautiful garden, man and woman, without sin, without shame, that's welled in the garden. We go over the fall of Lucifer becoming Satan, and then Satan tempting Eve, and then Adam and Eve both falling into sin. And at that point, sin entered into the world. And from that point, creation became cursed and was full of sin. And because of that sin, because of that shame and fall, um, the ground was cursed, everything was cursed, and sin entered into the world, and men became sinful. And Because men are sinful, they do not want to accept a god. And that's why a lot of people won't accept the Bible is because of the fourth word in the beginning, God. Man doesn't want to admit that there is a God ruling over them, so they try to figure out, okay, if there's not a God, is there a way that we can figure out, hey, um, how can we prove that we all are here and the world became um, came to being without the existence of a God? So looking through different theories, trying to figure it out, okay, let's uh, maybe this happened, this happened, this happened, a chain of events and a, a few interesting scenarios, and then an accident here, and booyah, here we are, okay, this is probably how it happened, now let's try to find evidence to figure out how this actually happened, and you're walking the kids through this process, trying to figure out, okay, yes, look into this for yourself, look at the Bible, you see how long it's been here, you see its reliability, and you see it was created originally perfect, and then sin entered into the world, and now because of that sin, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, meaning everyone is worthy of death. But that does not mean we are without hope. And then at the end of the first day, you're introducing the hope. You see, the Bible consists of more than just the Old Testament. There's a New Testament as well. And In the New Testament, it talks about one particular person in general that we will cover later on this week. But leading up to the New Testament, there is always hope involved. God says that one day he will send someone to deliver um, everyone from sin and then give them the free gift of salvation. That's what the Old Testament is all about, all the events leading up to that. So you end the story on a good note. There's hope. There's hope for salvation. And you start getting the kids thinking and thinking. Then you close out the first day. Second day, you come and say, hey... How many of you brought your history books today? They raise them in the air. Maybe about three quarters of them, not all of them. There's still a few kids. The horsemanship camp is mainly about 14 kids. They're all sitting around and stuff like that. And all the people in the front row, they're raising their Bibles in the air because they're paying attention and stuff like that. And some of the ones in the back, they're slouching, like, eh, I, I forgot mine. Sorry. Or I just don't have one. And you keep trying to motivate, oh, make sure to bring your textbooks to class. And they come, say, we're going to breeze through history again. Then you go quickly from Adam and Eve. To the time of Abraham. Now God promised that he'd make a great nation from Abraham. Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, his 12 sons, Egypt. And you're breezing through very quickly. They've got to hold on tight to their seats because you're going through the Bible very quickly because if we, if we read the Bible from cover to cover, we'd be here till tomorrow evening at some point. Keep reading on. So we've got to go quickly. And you're going through key passages, going through. And then eventually... You get from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And then we go to our key verse of the day. And the key verse of a Tuesday morning is 1 Kings four, 4.22. So um, that's going to be our key verse for the morning first off. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 4.22. I will read it real quick. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour. And three score measures of meal. Ten fat oxen and 20 oxen of the pastures and 100 sheep besides harts, roebucks, fallow deer, and fatted fowl. So the first part of this book mentions something significant. It measures that he has a great abundance of food, but we don't know for what reason. We kind of breeze through this. We know that um, Solomon is David's son. And we know that he, he is young and he just became king over Israel. And now we see that he is, has this multitude of wealth. Now, at this particular time, we don't know what a measure is. It says um, that he has uh, 30 measures of fine flour and three score measures of meal. And that's uh, his provisions for one day. Now, we can assume that's a great amount, but we still don't really know what a measure is. So you start off like, well, they're like, well, what, wait, what's a measure? I'm like, I'm glad you asked. We will get to that and what a measure is. Um, but first, we need to figure out why Solomon got this great amount in the first place. And we have to, to do that. We turn a chapter back. And we see that Solomon was blessed with wisdom. But we need to know why. You see, Solomon, he found grace in the sight of God. and He obeyed God and loved God even at a young age. So God asked him, what do you want? And this is the God of the universe asking Solomon, like, I'll give you anything you want, just name it. And Solomon, in his young mind... Could have asked for, hey, I, I don't know, I, th- these don't exist yet, but I think in the future at some point there's going to be something called a, a Porsche. If you give me one of these, I'm tired of riding around on a horse. I could get from one end to the other city and very, very quickly and stuff like that. And you play with the kids' minds. He could have asked for anything, and not just for physical possessions, but he could have asked um, for dominion over his enemies, a longer life, riches beyond comprehension, but instead of all that, we see Solomon's response in Kings, 1 Kings chapter 3, where he explains, um, my, David was a, my father David was a great, great king. Now he's gone, and I, as a child, am taking his place. I do not know how to be king. If I were to ask for one thing, God, please give me wisdom so that I can rule over the people because I don't know how to rule this people so great. And that was his response. And God, seeing his response said, because you ask for wisdom, and not for the life of your enemies, and not for anything else, not for riches or long life, you have wisdom. I'm giving you wisdom. But because of this also, I will also bless you with things that you did not name. I'll also give you wealth. I'll give you riches. I'll give you nobility and honor. And if you continue to follow me, I will also increase your days as well. So God blessed him exceedingly because of this. And then you go on in chapter 3, and you see Solomon's wisdom. And in chapter 4, and you keep going, and then you start getting to the things that Solomon had. Even as you see in verse 25, um, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Every man his vine under the fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. Remember, this is horsemanship camp. So when you said 40,000 stalls for horses, they're like... (gasps) That's a lot of horses. Like, yeah, that's more than you can ride in a year. That's crazy. And then twelve thousand horsemen, and those officers provide a victual for the king and for Solomon. But then we got to go back to the verse, and we got to feel like, okay, well, we see his provision for one day, but uh, there's thirty measures of fine flour and three score measures of meal. How much is a measure? And they're asking, what is a measure? Like, well, I'm glad you asked, because after increased study and looking in multiple places throughout the Bible, and looking through all the different biblical measurements, going down, looking here, and comparing them with each other. Remember, biblical measurements are a little different from how we do nowadays. We, we do things by cups and liters and courts and stuff like that. They had they their own dry measurements that we work with, and we have to study and try to compare them. We have found through multiple research that one measure equals ten ephahs. And then one person raises their hand in the back and you're like, yes. What's an EFA?"' they are like, 10 EFAs equal one measure. Right? What's an EFA? Like, if you want to know what an EFA is, you're going to have to come back tomorrow. But we're going to close out this time right now. Let's leave. And then they have to suffer through the night. They go home and they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, well, what's an EFA, And then we come back the next day. We figure out, okay, so... What did we find out yesterday? Yes, we found out that one measure equals ten ephahs. And then they mumbled to themselves, what's an ephah? And I'm like, okay, yes, yes, we're going to get to that. To find out what an ephah is, we have to go to a different book in the Bible, and that's the story of Ruth. So turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. we We're going to start with our key verse in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And that is where Ephah is explained. Now, it says that she only had one Ephah of barley um, after she gleaned and stuff like that. But you start getting into the story of Ruth. And the introduction of Ruth is it was taken place at a time when judges ruled. So this was before the time of the kings, and you talk about the judges, and the kids are enthralled with judges because there's people like Gideon, Samson, and all those great people, Um, and even Deborah, who was a female judge. And you start going through this, and you're talking about the judges, and you say, that sets up for what we're going on now. Now, there was a fam Famine in the land of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, being the house of barley, um, being a famine in that particular area, they couldn't grow things. So Elimelech took his family to Moab, which was a pagan nation. And Elimelech died, and his two sons died, and Naomi was left alone with her two daughters-in-law. And now she wanted to return to Bethlehem, but as she was going, she tried to get her daughters-in-law to stay at home or stay back in Moab because she didn't have anything else for them. But Ruth clave to her. Even though Ruth, we see two different dynamics here, first of all. We see that Naomi lost her husband, and she lost her two sons in about a 10-year time period. And we see Ruth that just lost her husband. So they both lost someone important, but we see one of them responding in a very bitter manner. And we see one responding in a very graceful manner. We see Ruth cleaving to Naomi and saying, no you are my family now, where you go, I will go, your God shall be my God, your people will be my people, where you stay, I will stay, and where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Remember that Ruth was from a pagan nation, she didn't grow up knowing the one true God, but after the death of her husband, she went to Naomi, and she said, no, your people will be my people now, and your God will be my God, and we see a drastic change in dynamic between these two different people, responding to um, death in two very different ways. One reacting in bitterness, and one actually growing closer to God because of this. They both return to the land of Bethlehem, and then as they're walking down the street, they say, is this not Naomi? And she's like, call me not Naomi. Call me Mara, because God dealt bitterly with me. Mara um, translates to bitterness, Basically, she says, Call me bitter from now on because that's, that's what I am bitter. So we see what she is at this particular time. We see that she is bitter. And as they settle in, Ruth's trying to cheer her up by saying, Hey, let me find some food. Um, go out. And she says, Fine, go find some food. And then she, she goes out, being a Moabitess, not really welcome to the area, comes to the field of Boaz. Boaz helps her out. Um, He's treating her with kindness. Um, He has his servants drop extra barley so she could glean them up. And then she beats out that which she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, we don't know what an ephah is yet. She's carrying this ephah of barley. But we do know that as she walks in through the door, going along, and Naomi looks up from her chair and looks across the room, she's like, where did you get all this? Because gleaning was going in a field and just picking up the scraps as the farmers leave behind, but we know based on her response that an ephah must have been a significant amount because she was out gleaning for a day and comes in the door with an ephah of barley and Naomi is surprised. And then Ruth says, I went to the field of Boaz. And then she said, Boaz is a near kinsman to me and you have the right to marry him if he desires to marry you. And we know how the story ends. Boaz ends up marrying Ruth and then the family is blessed but we see Naomi's Response in all this was that she praised God when she found out who the, fe- where the field belonged to. She said, Blessed be the Lord for he is a near kinsman to us. So we see her, she's, this is the same woman that said, Call me not Naomi anymore. Call me bitter because God dealt bitterly with me. And now we see her turning around and being like, Praise the Lord again. So we see that she changed because of one woman who reacted to a bad scenario gracefully, grew closer to God, wanted to make things better, and then was blessed because of it. And we see that even a bitter woman in this time turned around and started praising God because of it. But after further research and looking around, trying to figure out um, what the significance is here, we have concluded that one Ephah indeed Equals 10 omers. <laughs> yes, there are 10 omers and an ephah. At this time, the kids are shaking their hands. Like, oh, my word. What's an omer? And they're yelling out, what's an omer? I'm like, well, figure that out. You got to come tomorrow and bring your textbooks with you. And so now they're disappointed. They're walking out the door and things like that. But we, we're, we're getting there. We're getting closer. But I said, wait, 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 wait before you leave. There are 10 omers in an ephah and 10 ephahs in a measure. So how many omers are in a measure? And they're like, great, now we have to do math? It's like, And one of the girls would yell, out, just add a zero. I'm like, yes, there you go. Someone's good at math. We got 100 omers in a measure. So we're going math back and forth. And they're doing math class now and stuff like that. So now we're at an omer now. And as we start off the next day, we go back in our Bibles, looking back through, say, okay, let's go all the way to the time of Exodus. We go briefly through the life of Moses and how he grew up in Egypt, how he was exiled for murdering one of the Egyptians I was beating an Israelite. And he was a shepherd in the wilderness, and a burning bush came. God spoke out of the bush and said, I want you to deliver my people out of the land of Egypt. Now, Moses... We, we have the context of who he is because he is a shepherd at this time, and he is not allowed back into Egypt for he'd most likely get killed if he went back to Egypt. So he's exiled, he's a shepherd, really a nobody. And then God asks him, of all people, to bring his people out of Egypt into Canaan. And Moses, he's making up a lot of excuses as to not go. He doesn't want to go, and he makes up excuses, and he says, they won't believe me. So God asks, well, what's in your hand? He's like, a staff, because he's a shepherd. said, well, throw your staff on the ground. He throws a staff on the ground, becomes a serpent, and he gives them two other signs. And you could have a lot of fun with this as you're explaining to kids about throwing a staff on the ground or making your hand leprous and things like that. And they're, they're enthralled. But his final excuse as to why he shouldn't go was he said, I am not eloquent. I, I cannot speak. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. In essence, Moses gets stage fright. He can't talk in front of a large group of people, and he thinks this would be enough for God to not choose him and to choose someone else to lead the people out. But God doesn't accept that excuse. He says, who made man's mouth? Who makes the dumb, deaf, seeing, or the blind? Have I not, the Lord? Now go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. This is a very significant verse, especially at this time in horsemanship. Because we're at Thursday already, and at this particular time in horsemanship camp, you start hearing the words, I can't, a lot. Trot your horse, I can't. Get on your horse, I can't. Cinch up your saddle, I can't. You hear that a lot. And eventually, in order to pass their level, they have to. And you have to convince them that they can. Don't say you can't, do it. And they've got to push themselves and actually do it. Just like Moses, he said, I can't. Because I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God said, who made man's tongue? I know what you're capable of. Go. And he also encourages him and says, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So this is a very significant part as we dwell on this a little bit. We know what happens. God lets him take Aaron to Egypt. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Then they're at the Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea. And then as the Red Sea parts, they go through the Egyptian army, and closes on top of them. And the people start praising God because God delivered them from the Egyptians and they just saw a miraculous miracle. We don't know how much longer after, but it was a short while after, just after they were done praising God and glorifying him for delivering them out of the land of Egypt and um, killing their enemies, they start complaining again. Why? Because they were hungry. They were angry, and they were hungry, so they were hangry. And it was not a very good scenario. Um, They started complaining to Moses. They were saying, why we couldn't have just stayed in Egypt, because at least there we had food. Yes, we were slaves. We were working hard, but at least we had food. And now they're complaining because they don't have food. So Moses goes to God and asks what he should do. And God provides. For a key verse of this particular day is Exodus 16, 16, which reads, this is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man according to the number of persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. One omer. So we, God provides. And this is referring to manna that has fallen from the sky that was left for the Israelites. And as they woke up in the morning, they saw the manna draping the ground. They were allowed to go out, and they were collect an omer, not more than omer, they were instructed to grab just one omer for each person in their house. So one omer for every person. And then they would go into their tents, but on the sixth day of the week, they were allowed to gather two omers because they were instructed to rest on the seventh day. And so they had an extra omer so that they can eat on the day of rest. But one omer for each person. So we know, and we can assume here, that because each person was instructed by God to gather one omer per person, we can assume that one omer was enough to feed a hungry Israelite for one day. So it was about a, a one day's ration. But if you really wanted to get technical and you really wanted to do, get down to an exact measurement, um, we get omers into two different categories here. We got a wet measurement and we got dry measurements. If you wanted a volume measurement as to how much an omer actually is, um, we have found out through extensive research That by volume, one omer was about the volume of 43 chicken eggs. So if you were to put 43 chicken eggs in a basket, it would be about that volume. Now, there's a lot of other ways. So like you got dry measurements, you could say two quarts or wet measurements and different things like that. But for sake of conversation, we're going to stay on chicken eggs because every kid knows what a chicken egg is. You put 43 chicken eggs in a basket and equal in weight to volume, that's about how much manna they had about an omer. Now, I can't eat 43 chicken eggs in a day, so it's more than a day's ration, but we're just talking volume here. So if you put 43 chicken eggs and you got your volume of chicken eggs, just like that, there was enough to feed a hungry Israelite for one day. But then you backtrack a little bit. Say, okay, well, if there are 43 chicken eggs in an omer and there are 10 omers in an ephah, how many chicken eggs are in an ephah? And then the kids are to do math again. They're thinking the wheels are turning faster and faster. And then one of the kids in the back, usually one of the older girls, be like, just add a zero. And they're like, what? Just add a zero. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, 430 chicken eggs in an efa. Like, very good. Now, picture Miss Ruth walking in through the door with a basket of 430 chicken eggs. Now, Miss Naomi turns around and be like, where'd you get all those? And we know that that pure volume of barley that she would have walked in with was enough to change a bitter woman's heart and grow closer to God because of it. But we're not stopping there because if there are 430 chicken eggs in an ephah and 10 ephahs in a measure, how many chicken eggs are in a measure? They add a zero again. 4,300 chicken eggs in one measure. But we're not stopping there either, because the verse clearly says that there were 30 measures of fine flour. And now the kids have to try even harder, because now you're up to 4,300, and you got to multiply that by 30. Well, now, now they're just sitting, and they're shaking their heads, and uh, most of the boys, they've already given up at this point. But the girls are trying really hard, and they're thinking... And they're getting there. And finally, one of them finally raises their hand and says, 129,000 chicken eggs. I'm like, yes, very good. But we're not stopping there. Because it was 30 measures of flour and about 60 measures of fine meal, which is twice that much. How much is that? And the boys are just about ready to walk out the room. They're starting to I quit. But one of the girls raises up, and they're like, oh, 258,000 chicken eggs. Sweet. Now add the two together. No, I'm not going to have him do that. No, that's that's just too much. The point is, is you can go down to all the technical details and the fine um, mathematical measurements as to how much it actually is, but here's what it boils down to. One omer was enough to feed a hungry Israelite for one day. And one ephah was enough to change a bitter woman's heart, despite her scenario. And a plethora of measures was enough to bless a young boy who valued wisdom and was faithful to God. And you go back to these points because these are what these kids are battling with. They are young. They're trying to figure out. Some of them have struggled, hardship, have had a death in the family. And some of them struggle with anger, um, are bitter. And these are the things that you've got to stay focused on God about. And we see how God blesses those who are faithful. We've seen it in the life of of Solomon and and the life of Ruth. And and we see it it in, in the Israelites' instance. But it doesn't stop there. You see, at the end of this particular time, we tie it all together and bring it back to our point. This is all in the Old Testament, mind you. But at the time of the Israelites, as they were crossing the Red Sea, and it would have been the people that would would have been collecting manna in the desert, there was a man named Nashan who was there, and he was also collecting manna there in the wilderness. Nashan had a son named Solomon, and Solomon had a son named Boaz. And Boaz was the same Boaz that married Ruth. And then Boaz and Ruth, they had a son. His name was Obed. Obed had a son. His name was Jesse. Jesse had a son. His name was David. David had a son. His name was Solomon. So all three stories we talked about are now starting to flow together, and we see the pattern of how God blesses those who are faithful to him in all this. But it doesn't just stop there. Because after the line of Solomon, there are 25 generations later, you get to a man named Joseph. And after Joseph, Jesus. And that is what the New Testament is about. And going through the New Testament, you start explaining about Jesus and who he actually was and how the New Testament is about. Mine, that there are over 23,795 identifiable ancient copies of the New Testament. And they all boil down to one key person, Jesus. The one that was promised at the very beginning where God said he would send someone to die for our sins and offer the free gift of salvation. That's where you tie it in on that Thursday morning. You're like, this is what the Bible's all about, and this is what it's talking about. Everything in the Old Testament is leading up to the New Testament, and that is what it's about. And that is our last chapel message, and when it wraps up on that, our last real chapel message, because the following morning we do something special for horsemanship, and it's called a round pen chapel. You see, we use horses as a very distinct analogy to try to communicate to the kids, and they get to Not meet in chapel on a Friday morning, but they instead walk up to an arena. They're walking up to this arena, and they go up the hill, and they come to this round pen where there will be an untrained horse. There was a horse we bought a couple months ago. Um, He was $1,500, and the reason he was so cheap is because he was green broke. Um, Wasn't fully trained. Um, I got on him a couple times, he threw me off, and I was still trying to work with him to work some bugs out. But what this horse did have that the other horses really didn't is that he was very trusting and he would come up to you and he would follow you around and he'd do everything he asked you to do on a ground level. And I wanted the kids to see this because usually when you're working with a horse for the first time, the kids are sitting around the round pen, they're watching intently to see what happens. And the horse would be standing on the round pen and a round pen is a very important tool because there are key aspects of the round pen. There's a center and there's the outside. When a horse first sees you for the first time, it's primarily emotion based on instinct is fear. Fear is up here and trust is down here. And those are the two conflicting factors in a horse. And when you're working with the horse, it will face the outside of that round pen and look for a way to get out. Its head will be that way. Your key to training a horse is to try to get the horse to come to the center willingly by itself without you pulling it to the center. And this horse, as soon as I whistle, he comes right into the center. I said, yes, he came to the center, but will he follow? And you start walking. And sure enough, that horse pulls right onto your right, right side, and he starts following you. So yes, he follows me, but will he do what I ask him to do? Chase him around the outside, do two outside turns, two inside turns. Stays right there, calls right back in, he comes right to the center again. And I'll say, this is a horse that will eventually be usable because he comes to the center willingly, And he does what I ask him to do. Now, unfortunately, not every horse gets this state because we have a horse at camp that you can round pen for hours and he will not willingly come to the center. Just like a horse that won't come to the center willingly will never be usable if it doesn't fully trust you. It might do what you ask him to do out of fear instinctive. But that horse is not fully usable because he will not do exactly what you ask him to do when you're sitting on top of him. But it starts at a ground level. Just like there's not every horse will willingly come to the center, not everyone accepts Christ. You see, the reason not everyone accepts the Bible as a historical book is because people don't want to admit that there is what the fourth word is in the book. In the beginning, God. They won't want to believe that there's a God. They want to believe they are the Lord of their life. Do you, are you the Lord of your life? Or do you believe God is the ruler of your life? The key here is that not everyone accepts God. Not every horse is usable, but this horse is usable. He, we've worked with him. He comes to the center willingly. But a horse that's not usable is one that hangs out on the outside rail and always wants to find a way out and does not trust you enough to come to the center. And people are the same way. Not everyone is usable. How are you going to be usable? Do you want to be usable by God? Or are you going to rule over your own life and not be usable by God? This is how a typical horsemanship chapel goes from start to finish. From first day to last day. And we do do the gospel message on the Thursday. And then we say, unfortunately... There are people that don't accept God, but you can accept God. And even if you do accept God, chances are you know people who haven't accepted God. And you know the consequences if you don't accept God. And if you know a friend of yours is going to hell, and you don't tell them about it, how much would you have to hate that person not to tell them about it, knowing full well the consequences? And this is where it's a very sobering topic because a lot of these kids, they've been exposed to God and Jesus throughout the week. And they know people in the crowds that they hang out with that aren't saved. So the key here is to not just expose them to Christ, but to allow them to live as testimonies, living, walking testimonies. Before we close this time out with prayer, I want to say that it's been a great honor. It's been hard to work with these kids throughout the summer. Um, they put long hours, and you would be working with one, and they would be crying because they're on a horse they can't control. And as you're working with them, trying to call them down, another kid would be crying over here, and you say, uh, hold that thought, I'll be right there, and you're working with this kid. And as these two are crying, there's one sliding off her horse over here, and you've got to say, okay, hold your tears in, I'll be right back, and you've got to straighten this up, and things like that, and... This last week has been very, very difficult. We had four level twos and ten level ones. These ten level ones have never ridden a horse before. And it's very hard for a ten-year-old girl to look at this big, jittery horse and to get on. But they do it. They're brave. And we've had a couple fall off this summer. And the ones that do, they'll get right up, say, let me on that horse again and they'll write it. They're brave. They're strong. But they got to be usable. It's not just brave and strong. You got to live a life honoring to God.